Friends, would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning and um, we're thankful that we can gather together in freedom. We're thankful that we can gather together to worship. And with all that is on our minds and all that is in our hearts, when we think about the events of this last week, we're glad that we can be here as a church family. And that as your people, we can open your word and by your spirit, you, the sovereign God of the whole universe, will graciously speak to us. And that is our prayer. Teach us this morning, Father. Touch our hearts. Heal our sadness and answer our questions, we pray. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. You got the news sometime last Sunday, maybe Monday morning like I did. Either you turned on the television or you heard on the radio or saw it on the internet. And we know that there are terrible terroristic acts that have happened in our nation and around our world. Repeatedly, all too often, and with seeming greater frequency. But I don't know about you, but this one struck a little closer to home for me. You see, I pastored a church not unlike that one in Texas, a little white building in a small town about 30 miles outside of a bigger town, a church that was full of families. I have a 13-year-old daughter. That pastor had a 14-year-old daughter. In our church right here, we've got four generations of one family. They're a Southern Baptist church. We're a Southern Baptist church. I identified with First Baptist Church, Sutherland Springs, Texas, in a number of ways. And as I thought and I struggled and I finally just said to Myra as our worship leader, as we're planning worship, I said, I can't preach the sermon I was planning on preaching I've got to address this question of theodicy. Theodicy is a big fancy word that's defined by the statement on the bottom of the screen. The problem of evil in the world. So as I sent out the email, um, just to tell you guys and ask you to pray for me. And to kindly put out a disclaimer that this is not going to be in any way about you know, gun safety or gun violence or guns in our church at all. That's about the only mention of it I'll make. But this is about how do we respond to evil, to tragedy, to suffering. I mean, it's impossible for us to answer all the questions and all the whys. There is sin, hatred, darkness... Satan and his demons, it's evil. But as Norman Geisler says in his book, If God, Why Evil? The topic of evil offers us many on-ramps to proclaiming the gospel. Why is that? Because the opportunities are ripe in our world. Unfortunately, evil seems to reign so many times. 
And folks are always going to have questions of things that frighten us or things that cause us concern. And as Colossians 4, 6 says, that we should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how we ought to answer each person. But when we're asking questions like these, if God created only good things, then where did the evil come from? What caused Lucifer, we know as Satan now, to commit the first sin when there was no sinful tendency in him nor anyone tempting him to sin? And if God knew Lucifer and later Adam would sin, then why did he create them at all? If God's the author of everything real and sin is real, how can we avoid concluding that God is the author of evil? Why did God allow innocent people to suffer? If God's the creator of the natural world, then why does he allow disasters like earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes? Why do bad things happen to good people? If God's all-powerful, why doesn't he intervene and stop evil in the world? And if God's all-loving, why is there a place like hell? And when we ask the questions like this, it may seem that there are more questions than there are answers. But friends, the Bible commands us to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason of the hope that is in you. And I have to come back to that. As much as tragedies like Sutherland Springs break my heart and trouble my mind, I've read God's Word. And I know there are answers. And I have hope. And I pray that's the same for you. And if it's not the same for you right now, that it will be in about 30 minutes when I try to finish. That you'll have a few more answers. That you'll have a little more hope. And that you, like me, will say, okay, I don't know everything. I am imperfect in my ability to have an answer, like, you know, 1 Peter 3.15 tells me to do. However, I am trying. And I'm going to be honest and I'm going to be transparent with my friends and family members and uh, other brothers, sisters in Christ when we have this discussion about the problem of evil in the world. We have to submit that God is bigger and that our world is a whole lot more complicated than we generally care to consider. But it is times like this and incidents like Sandy Hook and Columbine, and Las Vegas, and Sutherland Springs, and the list goes on and on that challenge us to consider. Our scripture memory verse of the month is a good place for us to be reminded of God's sovereignty. Would you read it with me? Zechariah 14, 9. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name, Zechariah 14.9. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we understand the truth of Zechariah 14.9. That you are the one true God. And you will eventually 
on the day in which Christ returns be seen by everyone as the king of the whole earth. And yours will be the only name that anyone calls as God. But until that day, we look around and this place is an ever-growing mess. And God, we say, why would you allow these things? And some of us might even think, God, why would you cause these things? But here we are, Father, as your people, ready to open your word that your spirit might speak. And we pray that you help us in our unbelief and in our ignorance, with our questions and our anxiety, and that by your spirit you speak truth to us. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, we've got a problem. That problem I wrote on the top of your sermon outline. If God is totally loving and all-powerful, then why would he allow evil in the world he created? You've got a few blanks to fill in there. If God is totally loving and all-powerful, why would he allow evil in the world he's creating? Because if he loves us, he wouldn't want bad things to happen to us, right? If he's powerful, he could stop bad things from happening to us, right? So here's a few things to consider. And I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of blank space on your outline for you to write stuff down as um, it makes sense to you or as it challenges your thinking, maybe because it doesn't make sense to you. And um, if, like any Sunday, you're like, man, how did Pastor Aaron say that or what does he mean? Well, talk to me, email me, call me, whatever. Let's have a conversation. And if you're like, well, how did I say that? Well, most of what I'm going to say is probably written down right here. And I can say, well, I said it this way. Maybe I didn't say it right. I'm still learning too. But here's something for us to consider, and I'm just going to throw this off straight off the bat here. God didn't create evil. Evil is a natural result of God allowing his creation to have free will and choice. I'm laying that out as a foundational truth, a presupposition for the arguments to follow, if you will. That God did not create evil. That God allows evil as a natural result of giving humanity, those of us created in his image, free will. It's a paradox. You know, a paradox is something that's seemingly absurd or contradictory, but when you seek to understand it, it's true. And in that paradox, we've got to guard against two different extremes, monism and dualism. I'm speaking philosophically here. Monism that, you know, God created all things, therefore God created evil, Or dualism, that God, because he's good, therefore there must be an equal and opposing force that is evil, and we'll call that Satan. But we don't see monism or dualism clearly printed in Scripture. What we see in the Scripture is something in between, and that's the statement that I just made to you, that God is the creator, that God is sovereign, but because he created with free choice, evil arose out of that free choice. Lucifer's free choice, Adam's free choice, our free choice. God doesn't always answer our questions, friend, is my second presupposition. He doesn't have to. He's God. And maybe it is that he does answer our questions, but we don't understand them because we are us and we have so many layers of selfishness and our own jaded understanding. 
But what God does do is suffer with us. What God does do is use our suffering and use our questions and use the trouble we have with evil and sin to remind us of His goodness and to point us to His love. So let's start walking through a few truths. Truth number one that I would submit to you this morning is that God is absolutely sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign. Now, I realize I make this statement as a believer in Jesus who bases his opinions on the Bible, and you're free to disagree with me there, and I would disagree with you and tell you that you're wrong. But God is absolutely sovereign. He created everything, the entire universe, everything that was made and is made and will be made, God created, and he made humanity unique with a higher ability and an image of him. Think about what Psalm 8.5 says. It says that he made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. And I want to turn your attention, please, to Genesis. Now, friends, I need to tell you, we're going to be going through a lot of Scripture this morning. And I pray that if you don't have time to, uh, you know, get your electronic device there or flip in your Bible there, that you will write these things down. Because I think this is a serious issue for us to consider. And if we go all the way back to the beginning... Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then 1.3. He said, let there be light. Genesis 1.6. Let there be an expanse above the waters. Genesis 1.9. Let there be water under the sky and gathered in the sky. Genesis 1.14. Let there be lights in the sky. Genesis 1.20. Let the water teem with living creatures. Genesis 1.24, let the land produce living creatures. All these things that God created. In the end of verse 25, Genesis 1.25, and God saw that it was good. But then write down Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That doesn't mean God is hermaphroditic and he's male and female. It means that image is a spiritual image, not a physical image. But in God's spiritual image, with an eternal soul... As God is an eternal being, we are created. And notice verse 31. After describing the role of man, God saw that all he would made, and it was very good. God created a perfect world. Without the presence of sin, therefore without the presence of evil. But he created the first human beings, described more thoroughly in chapter 2 of Genesis, with the ability to choose, therefore with the free will, therefore with the ability to sin and go against God. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. 
Everything here is yours, dude. But one place I'm putting a boundary. This tree. Adam had free choice. Genesis 3. Eve has been created and now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat of the tree of the garden? And you have this exchange back and forth with the woman and the serpent. Whether the devil was actually in the form of a snake, we don't know. Or if it's just recorded that way here. And Adam and Eve broke the rules by their own choice. And sin entered into humanity. Following throughout Genesis 3, you see the results for humanity. The results of creation. And then, if you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 8. So you're in Genesis, so turn all the way back in your New Testament to Romans chapter 8. Paul, in the book of Romans, is writing a theological treatise. He is explaining about humanity and our relationship with God in a non-theological term I'll use there. And he says in Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up unto this present time. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He's saying that creation itself is fallen. That because of the choice of humanity, Adam and Eve, and we would have followed right along in sinning after them if they hadn't have done it first. So when I speak broadly, the choice of humanity, I'm talking about all humans ever. Because of the choice of humanity to sin, creation itself has fallen. And although you can make a case for it with more scriptures than this, to save us time, I'm using this one scripture to say that even what's wrong with creation, earthquakes, famines, hurricanes, diseases, is all a result of the fall of humanity, the fall of man, original sin. That because God is absolutely sovereign, made the world and everything in it, but made us as humans in His image. But because we sinned, the world is fallen and broken. So you've got an application question there. How do I understand God's authority? Now, I wanted to use a different word than sovereignty. Uh, authority is part of sovereignty. Sovereignty is rule and reign, but authority uh, points to sovereignty. So you can use the word sovereignty there if you like it better than the word authority. 
So if God is sovereign and if he does have all this ability and this power, how do I understand it? I think we can say that when we look at good and evil in the world now, we have to admit that justice is veiled as long as there's the presence of sin. But as Zechariah 14.9 pointed to on that day when Christ returns, there will be a reckoning. The sheep will be separated from the goats and good and evil of all of us will be judged and our unrighteousness will be burned up like dross or straw and our righteousness will be purified and shown for what it is as gold. And until that day, we have to consider the words of Jesus. Matthew 5.45 says that rain falls on the just and the unjust. What do we understand from that? That rain falls on the just and the unjust? We know that rain can bring good. Our farmers need rain to water the crops, to give us food. But rain, if it's too much, can also bring destruction. Look at the hurricanes and the way that it just sat over Houston and dumped. Whether you're a good person or a bad person, God is going to allow those things to happen in your life. Can we echo with Jeremiah 29? I'm going to ask you to turn with me there. Some of you know it. Others of you don't. You're going to go, whoa, yes. Jeremiah chapter 29 Verse 11, the prophet Jeremiah writing to the God's people in exile in the midst of it has these famous words that we see on bumper stickers and t-shirts and wall placards and we maybe have memorized. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. God is absolutely sovereign. And when God has plans for us, He knows them. And they're going to come true. And notice what they are, He says to His people then. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. In the midst of this promise is to us a Another promise that God knows his plans for us, but that God also says to us, if we'll come to him when we have questions and if we come earnestly with all our hearts, he will answer us. I will submit to you, his answer may not be what we want and his answer may not come as quickly as we want because we want it right now and we want it our way. That's kind of our sin nature. But God is sovereign and he's going to give it to us in his time and in his way. So let's summarize. God's sovereign. He created. He created the ability to choose. And because he created the ability to choose, sin resulted from that. Therefore, evil follows sin. And it arises out of our free nature as humans to choose, not out of God's nature. But God chooses not to exercise his authority at every time we want him to exercise his authority. He's God and we're not. So let's look to our second truth. Truth number two is that God is completely loving. God is completely loving. 
You guys know John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But would you turn with me to 1 John? So 1 John, go all the way back to your Bibles to Revelation and swing a few pages to the left, right? 1 John, and there are three little books, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, written by the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. And John the Evangelist, the beloved disciple, and 1 John chapter 4 speaks to us of love. Now, if you want to read further about God being love and how that works in our lives as humans, I would ask you to read 1 John, 1 John, the entire book. But right now, we're going to focus on 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and following. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Now stop right there for a minute. If you know somebody who professes faith in Christ and you don't see any evidence of agape, God-powered, other-focused, self-sacrificing, otherish love in their life, I think you are free to question if they are honestly a believer in Jesus or not. This scripture tells us, and there's more than this one, but this one tells us emphatically that if you do not have love, you may not be born again, you may not actually be a Christ follower. You've got to look for some love in their life, but then notice the last clause of verse 8. Because God is love. God is love. That is who he is. And so real love comes from God. The term we use for love that we most often think about is brotherly love or sexual love, erotic love or something like that. But that's not the kind of love it's talking about here. It's agape love. It's otherish love. It's God-powered. It's other-focused. It's self-sacrificing. It's a love that is supernatural above or beyond what's normal, natural for us in our sinfulness. That's who God is. So you're in 1 John. Now turn back with me to the Gospel of John. Back to your left to the Gospel of John in John chapter 14. We're in our discovery class last week, and one of our points is based on verse 6 of this, but we're going to begin in verse 1, John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the fact that he's going to go away. He's going to die, he's going to walk with them briefly, but he's going to be uh, resurrected into heaven and they're not going to see him anymore. And he says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. This is John 14, 1. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you also may be where I am. You know the place where I am going. So Jesus is saying, one reason I've got to leave you is in order that I can get heaven ready for you. He's assuring them by saying this, that God is sovereign because I can do things that normal people can't do. There is a place called heaven. I can go there. You can't go there yet. You can only go there on my accord. And because I love you, I'm getting it ready. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Remember in the Greek syntax, that definite article, the, is used three times. The way, the truth, the life for emphasis and rhetorical, uh, you know, uh, effects. So we can see, aha, Jesus is exclusively saying he's the only way to heaven. I would submit this to you as one other argument of the fact that God is completely loving. Because God does not leave us with questions of how do I get to heaven? How do I have eternal life? How do I have abundant life? How do I have joy? Because Jesus said it, it's exclusively through me. It's not through Allah. It's not through Buddha. It's not through self. It is through Christ alone. And then if you were to read in Romans chapter 1, so you're in John, turn back 20 or 30 pages to your right, maybe a few more than 20 or 30, to Romans chapter 1. I told you we were going to be here and there and all over. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Wait a second, Pastor Aaron. You're talking about the God is completely loving? And now you're reading us this passage about wrath? Well, hang on, hang on, go on. Romans chapter 1, verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. What it's saying is what we call general revelation, because God made creation, and creation is so perfect, and we can look at creation and say, wow, this world is specifically designed for human life to exist, therefore there must be an intelligent designer, a creator, and he's bigger than me, and he knows more than me, well, maybe that's a God. Or that is the one true God. That's what Paul is appealing to, In Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. That because God loves us, people are without excuse to not know God. So here's your question. How do I understand God's care? God's love. All these things that make up these qualities that most often we see as positive But if you think about it, even in a very pragmatic way, you would agree with me that sometimes because you love someone, you care for them, you wish good for them, you might do things for them that at the time they would perceive as unloving. When you tell your child, no, you can't do that. They want to do it. And they're mad at you, and they might even play that manipulative card on you. If you loved me, you would let me do such and such. How many of you have had a child play that one on you? Or more honestly, how many of you have played that one on God? God, if you loved me, you would give me what I want. Remember, God's sovereign. He's not subject to us. We're subject to Him. But remember, hand in glove with the fact that God is sovereign, that God loves us absolutely, positively, in a way that we can't fully understand. And because He loves us sometimes... Sometimes he will either cause or allow pain in our lives in order to get our attention. C.S. Lewis writes it this way. He says, God in his love 
intends to give us what we need, not what we now think we want. God in His love intends to give us what we need, not what we now think we want. I'm thankful that Lewis was a wise man and he says what we now think we want. He allows for the fact that maybe someday we'll figure it out and we'll want what God wants, right? But he nails us by saying, not what we need, but what we want. And so we understand sometimes as pain affects our life and even as we hurt for others that hurt and we look at terrible tragedies and we wonder, God, why? And God, how could you be completely loving? And what I would say to us is that pain, suffering, and evil point us to righteousness and holiness and perfection. That God is sovereign, that God is loving, but he gives free choice. Sin arises from choice. Evil arises from sin. But because God does love us, he provides a savior in Jesus. And not a confusing way, but the one and only way. And a spirit as presence. And the Bible as our guide. And one another to hold us accountable. That's the work of God in our lives. So let's move on. The third truth. The third truth is that God is all-powerful. Because I started with this question of if God is loving and if God is powerful, then why would he allow bad things to happen? Now, hopefully we've made a big enough case, and I know I can't fully, that God is all-powerful. I alluded to earlier, but now I want to ask you to turn with me to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, poetic and beautiful and simple, but makes a case for us of the absolute power of God. The fancy word for it is omnipotent, omnipotent, all-potent, all-powerful. Psalm 8, right about in the middle of your Bible, beginning of the Psalms there. Listen to what it says. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set the glory above the heavens. From the lips of his children and infants you have ordained praise. Because of your enemies, the silence to silence the foe and the avengers. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. There's a point in my past when as a new missionary in South Africa, I had gotten past the tourist stage. I had had some difficult things happen to me. I was missing home. And then I wrecked my little already junky car. It wasn't my fault. Somebody else ran into me. But um, as people can be, and because other journeymen, young missionary like me, had had a problem with wrecking cars, I was teased by real-life missionaries, you know, grown-ups. And I was just down and out. And we're having a revival meeting on the western edge of the gigantic Soweto township with the lights high and two million people laid out in front of me, and I'm standing outside a tent with joyful singing, and I'm throwing a pity party before God. Because I'm like, I gave up everything so I could come over here and love these people in Jesus' name. But all they do is think I'm stupid and I can wreck a car and blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I'm just having a pity party, right? And the moon rises over the horizon, bigger than I've ever seen it. 
Because of all the dust and smoke in Soweto, it has colored this amazing orange color and almost shimmering. The moon is. And God reminds me of this scripture. What is the moon and the stars that I put in place? But Aaron, you Yehu, I made you a little lower than the angels. I know you. I loved you. I called you here. So get over yourself and get to work, buddy. I'd like to tell you that I quickly said, okay, thanks, God, and ran inside the church and started singing joyfully. But you know what? I looked down at the dirt and I kicked some rocks and I threw a little fit even further until finally I fell on my face in the sand of South Africa in front of God. And I said, God, you are sovereign and you are loving. And because you love these people and because you love me, you've called me to be a part of your plan that some of them might know about your son, Jesus. You are powerful. Friends, sometimes it takes pain. Sometimes it takes evil to shake us out of our selfishness and to lead us to a divine self-surrender that puts us on the path to righteousness and Christ-likeness. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heaven burdens, and I will give you rest. Isaiah 41, 10 says, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Do not be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you with my victorious right hand. Romans eight thirty seven, my favorite verse. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. God loves me. And He is all-powerful. But I've got a final question. How do I understand His omnipotence? Can we conceive that God in His goodness and love can still be omnipotent but allow suffering and evil without contradiction. Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica said that nothing which implies contradiction falls under the omnipotence of God. You got to think about that a little bit. Nothing that implies contradiction falls under the omnipotence of God. Now, that's a small statement with a whole lot of writing and thinking behind it. Go back and read Summa Theologica, okay? It'll take you a little while. I.e., it's not God's insufficiency that questions His power, but it's my lack of understanding. So let's summarize. God's sovereign, God is loving, God is powerful, absolutely positively in all three. Yet we in our humanity have spoiled God's creation by our sin and by our evil and suffering is the result. Yet God in his sovereignty, love and power can use suffering, can use evil for his ultimate good and plan. 
I misspoke last week, and I'm not going to quote it right here. Miss Cami Amen talked to me about it last Sunday night when I said something. What was it that I said, Cami? Help me out here. You're right there. Say, help me out. You're going to say it right. I'm going to say it wrong. I said there are no promises that following Jesus is easy, and I would uh, submit to you that that is a false statement. There are promises that he will, just like I quoted Matthew eleven twenty eight, bear us up, right? What I should have said is that there are no promises that following Jesus will be without trial or trouble or pain or something like that. And those of you that are Christ followers and know for sure you're a follower of Jesus, but have still had trial, sufferings, uh, tri- trial, suffering, pain, and, and even been touched by evil, you know that I'm telling the truth. So thank you, sister, for helping me out. Owen Strahan says it this way, at the heart of the problem, the heart is the problem. Jeremiah 17.9 reminds us the heart is desperately wicked. And when our wickedness reveals itself in depravity, like Sutherland Springs, we grieve, we mourn, we question, we wonder, and we even worry. But there's a purpose, even in evil, even in wickedness. C.S. Lewis says in the memorable quote that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse the deaf world. Pray with me. God, our Father... I have to submit that I may have raised more questions here than I provided answers. And I sure hope that my answers did not sound trite. But when we have a question, especially a big and worrisome question, we need to bring it to your word and see what your word will tell us. So, Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that no question, no trouble is outside the scope of your word and your ability. And we pray now that you would bring comfort and bring answers to us and all those hurting, especially those families in Sutherland Springs. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.